So Bobby Quinlan, coach extraordinaire. Chance, how are you? Fantastic. Living the dream. Where did you grow up and uh, how did you start playing soccer? I grew up in Dallas, Texas, unlike a lot of you LA kids. Mm. Um, but, you know, pretty typical. Just started playing because everyone was playing. Like you just signed up for all the different sports. Um, I think I was in first grade when I started. Um, and I liked it. I didn't actually choose to specialize until my senior year of high school because I liked every sport. But soccer was definitely the sport that I always chose over, over every sport. Mm. Um, so. So what's your like? Uh, what's your favorite early soccer memory? Was there like something that made you like choose soccer over every sport, or? Uh, not really. I mean, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed running. I was a pretty rambunctious kid, so it's good to get my energy out. Uh, I didn't like a lot of rules and constraints on like what I could do. So like, my favorite memory is actually one time I had to pee, but you couldn't sub until the ball went out of bounds or was scored. So I just said, okay, give me the ball. And I ran and scored. And after I scored, I ran straight to the bathroom. And my <laughs> coach just said, <laughs> I was like, I think scoring is better than just kicking it out of bounds. So that's, that's definitely one that I enjoy. And my family definitely always tells at every gathering of that memory. So That's a pretty solid story. Yeah. Um, knowing you, that's like very apropos. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, so why did you get into coaching? Uh, I got into coaching. I mean, I miss soccer. Um, I had done, I had coached when I was in college. So that was the way I made money. I coached the local Bethlehem middle school. Uh, I was assistant for the high school. I did the summer camps and everything. Um, so I kind of missed that teaching. I missed interacting and, and helping people kind of achieve who they wanted to be and grow in different ways and all that type of stuff. So I got into it to get back into soccer and get back into teaching and when I got into it, I kind of found the love of like, wait, there's more than just the way I was taught. Let me go learn how to do it better. And that's kind of what's driven my coaching is trying to find the best way to relate, communicate, interact, and help players not just become better players, but better people. Mm. So obviously you had like a really cool career at Lehigh. You guys did some good stuff when you were there. Um, but what was your, what was your degree in there? It wasn't in teaching and stuff. Right? No, I actually got a degree in economics. Um, and so, you know, I was going to go the business tracked. Um, I was working in, um, securities compliance type stuff. That's what my grandma does. That's what I was thinking. Um, and it just didn't fit. You know, it was, it was definitely something I didn't, I wanted to be out on the field. I wanted to play soccer. I wanted to get my energy out. And so just kind of lucky in a way of like just consistently getting opportunities to, to coach, get experience, but, you know, still be able to survive almost, I guess is the word when you first start coaching, especially in the Bay area. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm definitely thankful that that kind of worked out that I never had to rely on, on my degree. And I was always able to do kind of, what I loved, but at the same time, understanding the things I learned in economics and how to critically think and how to, you know, look at the macro and the micro at the same time has helped my coaching for sure. I think that definitely like knowing how you coach, I think 
you have a unique perspective on certain things because of the way you analyze information and like synthesize it. I think it has a, yeah. I think it has a, you know, I think it has a really interesting impact on like how you run your teams too. Um, do you have any like favorite video or like highlights of yourself from like when, from your playing days? Not really. <laughs> I'm not a, not a fancy guy. I was never, my parents were never doing that stuff. Even at Lehigh, we never really did highlights. We were a blue collar team. Mm -hmm. um, so like not really any favorite highlights. There's no, uh, there's no highlights from your, your runs in the tournament or anything that was on TV? Uh, there's one um, that I can share with you um, from that uh, when we had our best year. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty good. It's just the whole team and we're, we're pretty much ballish. It was a fun year. <laughs> I think that's good too. Um, I bring, I like found, I thought about asking this question because we're doing so much stuff now that is video based. Yeah. Like all these kids have more video of themselves than they know what to do with. And I think some of us coaches, we go back and wish that we had highlights of certain stuff and the videos and pictures that we have are so random, few and far between. Uh, yeah. It'd be cool. I, mean, I don't know. I don't wish I had highlights of myself. I'll no? just get super, be like, man, why didn't you see that? Like, <laughs> I want to see myself making not the optimal decision. <laughs> Still uh, good. Don't get me wrong, but not optimal. <laughs> So Bobby Quinn then. All right, cool. Um, so second part of the second part of this interview is is more about the existential coaching and what it you know what it looks like to survive and thrive as a um, as a player and as a team. Just kind of your views on it. Uh, but and then we'll go to the bonus round. So uh, what is what does thriving look like? to you as a player as a team as a coach like what 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 comes to mind when you hear that question uh you know i understand where the question is coming from um and thriving to me is you know understanding when a player is just like confident in all aspects of their life so a player would be thriving if you know they're making solid life decisions they're becoming the person they want to be um it's not easy but they feel like they have the tools to deal with whatever kind of comes their way. Um, and that's kind of where I try to build players up and create this kind of self-belief. That's not just, you know, soccer is a tool to achieve that, but it's something that they should practice throughout, um, you know, the 24 hours a day, not just the hour and a half they're with us. Mm. I think I've seen that in your players, some who I see start off maybe as like, okay, but I think you really get them to find their their best selves. Do you do you um, do you think about that like with specific players, like what it is that they need, and like try to help individual players, or is it just like a team thing, um, and everybody just ends up where they end up? No, I think um, it's it's good good question. If you're gonna really do like athlete center or player centered approach it's it's got to be individually catered so you have to understand that the environment you create is always going to give the first stimulus to the players so you want to create a macro environment that is kind of nudging the players in the general direction you want them to go and then what you have to do as the coach is kind of your interactions are then to to kind of be like hey you know 
our environment's nudging you to this big sense. I'm going to nudge you here because this is where you should be. Another player might be here. And so this is where you should be. And so you, you're building them up in a way that's when you interact with them, it's, it can be personal and it can be more direct because the bigger picture stuff is being handled by the environment you create within the team setting. So how do you think, um, how do you think children learn? I know you have some uh, really nuanced and unique perspectives on it from your research and your reading and your overall experience. But uh, you talk a lot about environment setting. How do you, how do you think children learn? Uh, maybe you can explain that. So, I mean, I think it's, it's how people learn. It's, it's, it's children are just, um, more malleable, I guess, in a sense of, you know, as your brain develops, you have more um, specific understandings and patterns, understandings, and, and uh, you know, but it's not, it doesn't mean that adults can't learn this way. I think it's just how, in general, we learn as people, um, and it's through your environment. And so the idea of within your environment as a person, you pick up cues, you pick up information, you learn new skills, um, and things like that. And so, like, with children, what you want to do is create, you know, this engaging, fun, competitive environment so that they're interacting, interacting as much as possible with the world around them. And mm -hmm. it's through those interactions that they're going to gain experience and learning. Um, as coaches, what we need to do then is understand that we need to create this learning environment. And um, as we do that, it's kind of the term is was created by uh, Dr. Bjork. And I guess they're both Dr. Bjork, but Dr. Elizabeth and Robert Bjork, they're UCLA psychologists. They're the first ones to kind of term this, they call it desirable difficulties. And what that means is you need to create an environment that's challenging you in a specific way. So as soccer coaches, we need to create this environment in our trainings that will challenge them in what we want them to learn. Mm -hmm. So in the past, it's been kind of, hey, we're gonna learn this today. This is what it looks like. Can we put it into a game model? What I challenge myself to do is not tell them what we're learning today. Make the environment challenging in this specific way. Make them recognize kind of what, what is this environment now allowing me to do and then self-organize around that. And so when you do it in that respect, again, the environment is giving the macro cues. So the environment's kind of shaping them like, hey, we want to work on playing the ball forward. We're allowing this sort of, this is what the most optimal solution is. The environment's doing that. And then I can then coach individual team more into the details. I don't have to always be out there speaking. Um, and so that's kind of where desirable difficulties helps um, coaches create this learning environment of, the challenge, the solving of the problem means learning is going to happen. Um, it's also important to keep in mind, you know, if you want learning to stick, you have to space it out, um, which means, you know, you can't sit there. And I know one of the things I used to do when I was a young coach is we're going to learn build up and we're going to go until we've learned build up and then we're going to move on to defending. And until we've learned defending, then we're going to move on to transition the learning actually occurs not from the first action, but from having to pull from past memory of past actions. So the more that you pull from past memory, 
the more that pattern becomes um, something that you are able to pull out uh, quickly, which is what our game asks. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what spacing does. And then interleaving is, again, kind of trying to utilize that point from the memory. Um, I like to use the um, analogy that I once read of note cards, where if you just go through note cards, restart the note cards, restart them, you're actually just learning the pattern, you're not learning the information. But if you go through note cards, shuffle through note cards, shuffle, it might feel like you're not learning them, but you will do better um, when you're tested. Um, and then that's the last part is we have to test these kids. Um, it's something that I've changed a ton, probably in the last two or three years of, we just need more games. You know, I think there was a, there was a movement five or six years ago that trainings were more important than games um, because you could let these players kind of focus and develop but the games are the way that they test themselves. And when you're testing, you are, you have no one to lean on in those moments. And so what you're actually learning is who you are. Mm -hmm. And now there's ways to create that, you know, psychological safety within a game setting. And that's our challenge as coaches. Like how can we have them play more games, but feel comfortable with failure within those games? Um, I think is what's important. Right. I think about it as when we were kids and our things are, time was maybe less structured um, and soccer was probably you know, less important of a game to the overall culture. It was something that we had to go out and sort of do on our own, right? So we had these neighborhood games, we had all this stuff and those were games where we got to test ourselves against different kids in the neighborhood, the older kids, younger kids played different. We'd come up with stuff on our own. So we're leading the way, we're we're making up the boundaries. We play kind of without a fear of failure or without like parents watching and caring, maybe because they didn't spend money on it, maybe because they didn't drive two hours somewhere on a Saturday to go see us play and like didn't have that level of like, yeah. stress, right? So yeah, I totally agree. Now that, we, now that we're starting to recognize that and hopefully playing more games, I think it's been a, I think it's been a big improvement on the girl side, at least in our club that we we've started to play more exchange games we started to play more games between each other we started to schedule random games and have just more trainings in general so that we have that space for those like open environments where they just play and kind of test themselves against what we're doing well it's interesting because that's something i've been thinking about and i think we've talked about is what is the role of a club team is the role of a club team to and when i'm talking about that i'm talking about like in development is it to create is it's to supplement what you're kind of doing at home i think we always think that home should supplement what you're doing in the club but your home environment if it's unstructured and you get a lot of time to go seek out games and you get a lot of free play then in the club environment you can be more strict you can say this is what you're doing this is how you should do it this is what we want you to do in our game model every single time because they're getting that exploration at home. They're getting to say, I get to take what coach told me and put it into practice on my own and try to figure out what that's like. If I'm super structured at home and I'm being told exactly what to do, I gotta go to violin practice at four, soccer practice at five, uh, homework at six, dinner at seven. And I don't ever have time to explore what that is. Well, as a club, we didn't have to supplement that in a way of saying like, hey, um, we have to provide environments maybe with less scaffolding that allow you to, um, to, to do, have that learning. And maybe it's not through free play because it can't be through free play if coaches are there. 
but just understanding that I need to design my week, my month, my year with in mind that I might have to have more explorative practices throughout the year because they're not getting this at home. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that I've seen you do a lot of stuff with every age of kids and both, uh, both genders where they are dictating um, what the team's mentality is or um, they're, they're leading the way. Uh, why, why do you think it's important for, for children or for players to lead the way? Uh, I think in the macro sense, it's what kind of makes me do it is development overall is not linear. And so if you think about it from that perspective, um, every player at every moment is in a different place in their development, whether that's as a soccer player, as a person, as, um, as an athlete. And mm -hmm. so the idea is, as you start to put them in charge, you, you're giving them moments to build themselves. Um, you're giving them moments to kind of say like, hey, this is how I should develop. This is, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. I'm the one playing. I have the best sense of who I want to be. Um, some byproducts are, you know, you get more engagement. Um, they're more empowered. So, you know, they try harder. They're, they're in control of it. Um, it's teaching them lessons in life when they're adults. It's, it's very self-driven what you have to do. Um, you know, very rarely do you just get a job. You have to go out and apply and, you know, work at it and do things like that. Um, so you're giving them kind of those soft skills um, that often aren't really focused and you're doing it in a way where they just get reps at them, reps at them, reps at them. And that's what you want. Um, it's also... Um, incumbent on the coach though to understand that it's not just here kids have this responsibility um lead the way you're you know everything it's it's no it's i have as a coach I have to give you the tools to understand how to self-reflect um you know how to talk to each other how to analyze the game you know we have a rule of you know um when we when we do these player-driven sessions and they're sitting there and they're mainly leading the coaching and, you know, they're just answering questions to each other that maybe I posed, maybe they've posed. Um, they basically say, you know, must have eye contact, must have physical contact after um, you say something. Um, and you must be reaching a certain level. If you're not reaching that level of play, then you haven't earned the right to tell each other things about technique and tactics. Um, and this goes for the games. You know, if, if we're not playing like we expect what our, what we call our um, acceptable level of play. Give your acceptable, right. unacceptable, and excellent. Exceptional. Exceptional. Right. And yeah. so like if we're not hitting acceptable in like the areas that we said, like they understand it's not a moment to even talk about tactics or everything. It's how do we get back to acceptable? So like, you know, we won't even talk about, you know, hey, we need to do this better or this better. It's like, no, how do we get back to acceptable? Because before we get there, you haven't earned the right to talk about the other things. Mm. And so it's, again, giving them the, the tools and guiding them so that they understand how to create deeper, meaningful connections with their peers, um, their uh, superiors. I mean, considering, like, as much as we like to say, like, we're the adults in the room, um, that's never going to be lost on us um, and themselves. And so that, that's partly why I think, you know, it's it's important for children to lead, but it's also something that 
needs to be better understood by coaches because I think some coaches use it as a crutch and just say, oh, no, they're leading the session. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, there almost needs to be more thought involved when it's a ch- child-led session. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you put it that way. I know I wasn't in – I was in college when I heard this, and it was halftime of a game. And, you know, we went into the – we went into the shed, which was our, like, faux locker room and had the whiteboard and everything. And, like, the coach didn't go over any tactics or anything. He just said, guys, it doesn't take – it takes zero skill to make effort. We aren't even trying hard enough. We aren't even, like – we aren't even close to doing the simple things well enough for me to bother talking about tactics. What is it that's going on with you guys that we can't, that we aren't at this quote, how you would describe it as like an acceptable level. Like we, we just need to get to an acceptable level and then I can judge you. Like I'm not even gonna bother with the rest of the stuff. And he was, you know, he was a really sharp guy and we knew that he knew tactics or could explain things to us. I think maybe we sort of like leaned on him or we're just hoping to go in there and have him tell us, you know, some magic secret right and really it was it was like more about us just right just doing that stuff that's great um so next question is I lost my track here um what do you think it means to um what do you think it means to embrace the struggle um hold on one sec sorry um I just want to make sure uh, before we move on, let me get it here. So um, the uh, acceptable, unacceptable, exceptional is not something that I created. It was created by Mark Bennett, um, who's, he does uh, rule of three and he's phenomenal. So if coaches are looking more into that stuff, He's definitely someone to follow. Bennett? Yeah, Mark Bennett. Got it. That's good. I like how you're uh, (laughs) giving everybody the credit that they deserve. Why not? (laughs) Whenever people say like, oh, I don't need to go to college. I'm like, all right, maybe you don't. But I think the biggest thing I learned in college was that somebody's probably already thought about this thing before you have. And that, yeah. so that gives you like a jumping off point and then you can apply it in whatever way fits for you. Yep. Yeah. All right. Back to your question. Yeah. So um, just embracing the struggle. What do you, what do you think that means? Uh, it's again, I like the language that you use. Um, I'm going to steal again. So we've been as for the 2007 boys team we've been during this quarantine um shelter in place been going and critically reading a book called the young champion's mind by jim aframo um and you know some of the stuff he talks about um we've been pretty critical of but one of the things that i think i really liked and that the team really liked um and it's about embracing the struggle is is being anti-fragile you know, so, so this means not just being able to deal with problems that come towards you in a positive way, or even successes that come towards you in a positive way. Cause I think sometimes success can be a struggle. Like how do you deal with being successful? Um, but instead it's, it's kind of going out and seeking things that are challenging to you 
in order for, because you know it's gonna make you better. It doesn't matter what happens, whether you, you get the job, you don't get the job, the fact that you're seeking is gonna make you better. Or it doesn't matter if I make that recovery run because if I stop the goal or don't stop the goal, I make that run because I know I'm gonna be better for it. And maybe one out of a hundred times I'm gonna save that goal. And maybe it's that one time that helps us win something important. Um, and so when, if you think of it in that respect, then it stops to become a struggle um, and it starts to just become who you are. Uh, and I think the best was the, I was, this one, I don't know where I heard it from, but they stopped, they, they questioned why people always call things the grind. They said, it's not the grind. If you're working and learning, you're humming. Right? You're just a car and you're moving and you're humming. So instead of a grind, it's, it's kind of like, how can we be humming as we go through? Mm. That's a, I mean, that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, how do you ensure that even your, I mean, you have some really impressive players on your 2007 team, right? And you've had some really good players in your older teams, the ones that have done really well in Champions League and maybe done better than some of the boys, I mean, some of the boys teams have ever done in our club because we're so young. Uh, how do you make sure that those kids are um, have a struggle regardless of their level within, within a training session or within a game, maybe when things are too, maybe when things are just easy for them in comparison to other people or... Um, maybe you're playing a team that you're just walloping. How do you, how do you create struggle in those moments? Um, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's, it's in order to, to answer that properly, you'd have to give a little bit more context. Um, I think the idea of in training sessions, just how do you create that environment? I mean, you see a lot of coaches use overload and underload for strictly tactical or maybe technical, but it can also be for that mental struggle aspect. You know, you can put players into that. Um, scoring systems, maybe a player is very good at scoring one way. And so you kind of, in a training, you're, you're trying to get the team to get better at something. And so you create that struggle within it. Um, in blowout games or things like that, that are too easy, um, the struggle, you know, there's the obvious answers, you know, you're changing positions, you're doing that type of stuff. Um, I think it's important too to kind of understand leadership roles. So if you have a player who maybe has been playing 90 minutes and your team's up 5-0 at half, you don't play in the second half. And you're saying like, what do you do as someone on the bench? You know, at some point in your life, there's going to be 11 players better than you. How do you deal with that? What are things you're going to do now? Um, and so it's just understand, again, where that player is in their psychological, physical, soccer development and creating an environment um, that's going to maximize their learning. And like we talked about earlier, if we're going to maximize their learning, there has to be struggle. Mm -hmm. or else there, there's going to be nothing there. And so it's, it, like I said, it just takes more time. Like if you're going to design sessions, you have to take all that into account. And so this is one of the things I kind of get frustrated with of session design per se is the, the actual exercise is less important than the why behind the exercise. Like, why are your players being put in the situation to do this? Mm. And if you can answer that, then you have a great, you have a great 
design if they're competing and they're meeting your acceptable standards. Um, if you're saying, well, they're just doing it to do this, then I don't know. I don't know if that's as good of a session. It's true. Um, I think those are, I think that's a really good answer. Sometimes I try to give you questions that don't have too much context just to see sort of where you're like, where your mind wanders. Um, and we were, t I was talking with Jeff yesterday and we were talking about the idea of the polo shirt, right? Like you're, <laughs> no matter how good you think you are at some point, you're going to be, you're going to be the one that's just, yes. Like, shirt right <laughs> yeah. so t so finding players that are even really good you know and you know they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna encounter some new struggle and you want to like you want to prepare them for how they're going to uh, how they're going to meet that moment you know and go from there so uh, that's perfect um next question would be um how do you try to, I think this kind of ties into what we just talked about, is that everybody needs something different and there's a lot of different aspects to how you engage with players and teams. But how do you generally try to lead your teams um, from the sideline? Um, and then maybe take into context also, whether you're coaching a U10 team versus a U19 team, like what are, what are the differences? Um. I mean, in general, the idea is it's their game they're going to play. They, they dictate all of the soccer actions, um, you know. So what that means is, you know, I'm not out there telling them what to do, um, win the balls and play or anything like that. So they're, they're dictating all the actions. Um, with the younger kids, I'll probably be a little more – individual on the sidelines you know um you know rarely when they're u10 are they playing all of every game um i do find it tough and it goes to like how much instruction at that age is valuable so if you wait till they get off the field hard for them to put themselves back into that context because they have limited playing experience so that might be the first time they've ever encountered that. And so it's just so fast and they, they can't remember what they're feeling or whatever. So explaining specific instances to them post moment, I, I wonder if that's as valuable as, again, sticking to like general principles that we're trying to accomplish. Like, hey, remember in moments where this is happening, we wanted you to try to do this, right? Try to find those learning moments in those situations. Um, I find that um, when you're doing it, when they're older, like at the U19s, again, they still drive all the soccer actions, but you can be a little bit more, um, you can, again, remind them of things a little bit quicker. So, you know, while the ball's in play, maybe they're on the weak side, you can be reminding them of things. Um, and you're trying to, to kind of understand what style of play we're trying to have in the game. Um, so when they're younger, you maybe do less of like, this is how we want to play today and be more like, this is what we were working on in training. Can we accomplish this in the game? But when you're in U19, you should have a game model at that moment. And so you're trying to understand, okay, within our game model, here's what we want to do. Here's how we want to progress up the field. Here's how we want to defend. Here's how we want to score goals. Here's how we want to stifle their space. Um, 
And so a lot of that stuff is, is predictive because that's all a game model is, is predicted thoughts and predicted movements um, where when they're younger, you don't necessarily want that game model. You want them focusing on the principles, the habits, those types of things more so than um, when they're older. Mm. So you feel like maybe when they're younger, you're focused on habits. And then as they're older, you start pulling out the uh, metaphorical note cards that you have, like asking them to recall their understanding of certain things. It's more, maybe I misunderstand, but it's more like when they're older, it's like, hey, we want to exploit the space, right? That's our principle. We want to exploit it um, in forward areas. Well, where's the forward area in this game? And we actually like sit there and go through like, let's kill it. Let's keep going to that forward area. And then when they adjust, now where's the space going to be? So then we go to that space. And so like you're still using the principles, but within your game model, you're saying like, hey, this team's playing at 352. That means we're going to have space here and here. And so you're actually telling them this on the field. Right? At the younger ages, I probably wouldn't tell them like, hey, go find the space here because I need them to learn how to cap capture that on their own so that it's a quicker mm -hmm. transition when they're U19. That makes sense. Um, and so I guess that's that's kind of what it is. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, so how do you uh, how do you try to create contribute to creating a sense of community uh, within your teams so that these kids feel like it's a safe space? They feel like it's a a place where uh, they can learn and explore and grow and um, have that have that freedom to work like dictate how things go with each other. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's something that you have to do every day. So, you know, whether it's small things of like you you show up to practice, you shake hands, you juggle, you sit there, we play soccer, tennis, um, we get in a huddle before we start practice, two deep breaths, um, shake hands when you leave, everyone helps with the equipment. Um, those types of things are important. I think it's important too to physical contact, whether it's a high five, even just a, a nod and a, a hand up just to accept that people are talking to you. I think it's important because it allows deeper conversation and allows that community. To, it allows us to be critical of each other, but at the same time, understand that that criticism is only to help you and help the team. Um, I think the, so those little things are important, but something that I started doing um, when our um, old DOC Eddie Soto kind of enlightened me to this three or four years ago, um, and I, I kind of stole from him is we get together once a month and we do something off the field. Um, so we will some, like it can go from laser, we've done laser tag, we've gone to the beach, um, to community service. So we did community service in February before we went into shelter in place. Um, and the reason we do that is, is to kind of, you know, we talk about, I talk about, you talk about, the club talks about the player is more than just a soccer player. They're a whole person. Well, this gives us that chance to kind of let the players show that they're more than just the sum of their soccer skills. So, um, you know, some players are very good in the community. Um, and so they get to show that when we get to do that stuff. So it's just, it's, it's fun for them to showcase the other parts of themselves. Pretty cool. And I've seen you guys do, what do you like food bank and that type of stuff? How do you, and uh, you think it's important, like even though you guys play at such a high level, um, do you think it's like really important and critical to their development as a, as a team and as players to go away from the field to do that stuff? 
No, I do. Um, it's, you know, it, it creates kind of a, a like we we get to be so creative and take so many chances in games that allow us to be better because no one is concerned kind of about what they look like on the team. So everyone understands that everyone's kind of, you know, they're all very close friends. They're all very close. There's not a ton of clicks. And even within the clicks, it's, you know, they're, you wouldn't even be able to tell what they are. Um, and so it just allows us in games to take more chances to, to make more mistakes, I guess, but also to be better. Like if we might make mistakes sometimes, but we score some ridiculous goals or do some crazy stuff that like you wouldn't even think was possible because they all feel safe to do it. Um, it also kind of keeps us in line a little bit because when players start to start to veer off, we have a whole group that brings them back. Um, but we wouldn't be nearly as good as we are if we didn't do the stuff we do off the fields. Mm -hmm. And that I truly believe. Do you think that like, um, let's say you have a, let's say you have a U19 team and you have a player who, you know, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of a different bird. They're kind of off on their own and maybe they aren't as engaged with that that stuff that you're doing, but they're like a really useful player on the field. They're like really effective. They can beat two, three players at a time. Um, you know, maybe they don't have a horrible attitude or whatever, but they haven't really bought into this like team aspect that you're trying to develop. How do you, how do you deal with that player? One or like two, do you think that sometimes you'd rather have um, a slightly lesser player who has bought into everything be part of the team more a bigger part of the team instead um the idea would be again context in and around that so if the player is not disrupted to the team that's a it's an unfair ask of him to buy in 100 percent to an situation that i've created that maybe makes him uncomfortable i, love I would that. never i would never judge that player because like maybe they are just this isn't who they are so they're not comfortable doing that yeah yeah um so it's it's finding other ways to engage them within the environment that we're creating um now if the player is disruptive and you know doesn't meet the things that we've said as acceptable for the team then yeah i mean that's that's just you know you're missing those aspects and you're missing this aspect i don't know if this is the right place for you maybe you're better suited for another environment. And at that point, it's like, hey, what's best for you? You have to do that in that moment. Yeah, I love the way you describe it as, um, is the player actually disruptive, you know, or is this just counter to like who they are maybe as a person, right? So you make space for different types of people, you know, and then you, and you put it on yourself, right? To try and help them engage with that environment. I was reading an article this morning about um, Nicholas Anelka. Do you remember him? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So like he came to Arsenal right like at, as Ian Wright was starting to wane in his like, you know, physical power. Um, and he sort of overtook Ian Wright as the starting striker in the team and had a couple of good years at a really early stage of his uh, life and of his development. It was like 1920. Um, and he was just a, they called him Le Sulk uh, <laughs> because he, but he was really just like, he was just an introverted guy, you know, he was like, 
He was super smooth, super athletic, um, really loved to play, came into his own when he was on the field. But as far as like off the field stuff, like he just had a hard time kind of vibing with people. And he had moved right. over from Paris to London and he had all these huge characters in the team who were a little bit different and had maybe grown up in a slightly different age. You know, he didn't smoke, didn't drink, whatever. And they were saying that like, even though as good as he was, because he overtook Ian Wright in the team, some of the um, fans, like in a poll, said that they like didn't like him as much, right? Or they were like frustrated yeah. with him. And like the English media said some stuff, and it like put him off so much that he wanted that he left Arsenal in like 24 months, you know, where he was at, just because nobody was a because Arsene Wenger was the only person who was recognizing like, look, leave this kid alone. This is just not how he is. He's yeah, just, exactly. <laughs> you're killing him. You know? And it like, I, I wouldn't say that it killed his career, but he essentially had to move from place to place to place because we couldn't get the rest of the environment to um, acknowledge that it's okay to be different, right? And just deal with those players. I think it's helpful that I'm different. So I always am cognizant and aware of people who are different. Mm-hmm. So um, that is one thing I think I encourage within this environment, even though we're close, I encourage everyone like be unique, be your own person within it. Um, trying to learn how to to be a part of a community, but not subservient to the community. Mm. You're, you're still your own person. Yeah, that's deep. Um, all right, sweet. So those, that's like the middle part, the meat of this uh, interview. Um, but the uh, are you are you ready for the bonus round? Yeah. All right, sweet. So build your build your dream starting eleven in thirty seconds. Secret about me, I don't know soccer that much. I can't come up with 11 players in 30 seconds. <laughs> hey, dude, I get you beforehand, so you could have written it down. Way ahead. I know, but all right. So Zidane, 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 Gerard, Gerard, Xavi, Xavi Alonso. Um, and that's it. <laughs> Is that 11? You picked, so you fixed four? Okay, cool. Got it. <laughs> that worked. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just I don't – like, I like watching soccer, but again, I like the game more so than, like, individual players. Yeah, I've always found that uh, I've always found that interesting about you, that you don't have a team that you care about. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have too much love for Oklahoma Sooners, that's why. <laughs> I, uh, I asked Lee that, and Lee said, uh, the current Coventry City starting 11, because we're going to win League 2. Nice. <laughs> it's like, all right, nice. cool. Um, how about your coaching Mount Rushmore? Do you have four? Are there four coaches that you would uh, that you take inspiration from, or that you think are great? Or yeah, so I would say uh, Phil Jackson for sure. Um, again, just unique guy. Um, Pep because of just all he's accomplished um, and the way he thinks about things is I think valuable as coaches. Um, Greg Popovich just the way he handles people, um, and then Lincoln Riley. Um, and that's not a homer pick. It's more of a, you know, how do you be so young and so inventive, but at the same time command the respect that he's commanded over the last two years, um, I think is is super impressive. Lincoln, where, where's Lincoln Riley from? He's know. the head football coach of the University of Oklahoma. Oh, all right. Yeah. That's fair. Oh, hey, Rory. <laughs> Baby, you need... It's coming, bud. It's coming. Yeah, you're going to get your milk Hi, soon. Dude. Probably all right we, are, we got three more questions left almost done I uh what chance oh hi jan hi jenna <laughs> almost done 
Uh, most iconic goal you remember from your lifetime? Could be one you've seen in person, could be one you scored, could be one you saw on TV. Like, what's... Most iconic goal from my lifetime was an eight-viet co-ed game. Um, you were taking the corner kick, and I put my hand up and said, put the ball here, and you put it exactly there. And I hit a full volley into up ninety. <laughs> amazing goal. I think it was men's league though, not co-ed. Oh, it was men's league. You're right. That was an amazing goal. That was my. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I like this guy. He can put the ball exactly where I wanted to. It was like we were the only two people on the field in that moment. It was. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. So, what's a? Uh, could you build a co-ed five-a-side team with yourself in it? Uh, so it's me, Zidane, Abby Wambach. Abby Dow Camper and Chila Bear. I love it. That's such a good team. <laughs> I know. So much I got center back, center forward, two center mids, and like the most how's the right way to put this? Tough goalkeeper. <laughs> and literally every one of you would be willing to two foot somebody. Exactly. That was the goal. <laughs> You're like, I don't need one defender. I'm just going. No. We'll all kick you as butt. All right, so last thing is just like your coaching mantra or the best coaching advice you ever um, you ever got. Uh, coaching mantra is always, and the kids make fun of me, but it's always kill it. Whatever doubt creeps in, you just keep pushing. You kill it and you keep pushing. Okay. Right, it's like the two angels. Kill the devil one. Mm, that's deep. All right, cool. Uh, I like that it's short and sweet. I like that it's brief. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's super helpful. Uh, cool. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, you're a legend. Thank you, um, Chancellor. You too. Yeah. Keep it up. And uh, you can just uh, close that recording and maybe save it for yourself, um, but don't delete it. Uh, okay. Just in case mine messed up. Okay. Sounds Sick, good. dude. All right, man. Have a good day. You too. Later, Chancellor. Bye.